Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we sit down with Cynthia Marshall. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Waymaker Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Cynthia Marshall is the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. In 2018, Cynthia Marshall became the first ever black female CEO in NBA history. Today, we'll discuss her career journey, the obstacles she had to overcome, her current role, and so much more. Let's get started. Hi, I'm Lewis Carr, founder of Waymaker, and today on the Waymaker Fireside Chat, we have a real treat for you. The CEO of the Dallas Mavericks, Cynthia Marshall. Welcome, Cynthia. Oh, it's so good to be here. It's so good to be here. And because I'm already enjoying our pre-conversation, you are my friend and you can call me Cent. Because you're family. You're family now. Thank you so much for that. Uh, This is a real treat for our audience because what we try to do is inspire, educate, and motivate our listening and readership to the next level, no matter where they are. And your journey has been absolutely amazing. To be the CEO of an NBA basketball team is something special all by itself. And I read that you had never heard of Mark Cuban. All right. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Don't judge me, but it's true. Don't judge me. I did not know who he was when he reached out to me. My husband and my son had to make me call him back. Now, 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 Seth, why did Mark Cuban reach out to someone who had never been in sports? I mean, never been in basketball, never had anything to do with it. What was it why he reached out to you? Okay, so, and I love that question. And I think it was because my name came up by a few people when, you know, the situation broke out in Dallas with the Sports Illustrated article, the years of misconduct, sexual harassment, all that. So as Mark is processing through all that and genuinely, you know, you know, addressing the situation, trying to address the situation, I guess my name came up in a few places as somebody who people thought could help him through his crisis, but also help lead uh, the business side of the organization because of leadership, because of a proven record with AT&T of having, you know, uh, led teams that transformed cultures and create a great place to work. Uh, because I worked at AT&T for 36 years, then retired, started my own consulting company and was doing that kind of work. So somehow he got my name and I guess did his research and said, you know, I, I need a leader. And, you know, I was concerned about not knowing the business of basketball. I was a fan, huge basketball fan, but I just truly didn't know him. I didn't know um, the business of basketball, but he wanted a leader. And that's what he talked to me about when, you know, when I met with him, that he needed somebody who could lead the people who could, and and these are my words, who could actually put us on a journey to be a great place to work, which is something that I did uh, at AT AT&T in my 36 years. And so... You know what? I told him I'd go home and pray about it. And then as I was leaving his office, two women stopped to tell me their stories and just asked me if I could, you know, really uh, come and do this and consider the job because I guess he had told people earlier in the day that he was going to be meeting with me. And you know what? What was interesting? I had written a blog that morning called Impact. 
And then these women end up using those, that word. They said, we think you could come in here and have a real positive impact on us. And I thought, oh, Lord. Now I said, I'll just go home and pray about it, but the Lord is already speaking. And so I did go home and pray about it. Came back the next day. I was in the building for three hours before Mark even knew that I was back in the building to talk to him because people just started telling me their story. So uh, I was meant to be here and I'm glad somebody gave him my name and uh, the rest is history. Well, you know, the reason that it, it struck me because the normal practice in these type of situations is you hire someone in charge of diversity and inclusion, you hire a new head of HR, all right? And then you bring in some consultants to sort of, you know, get through it. You don't usually just say, hey, I'm going to the top. I'm going to hire somebody that's going to be responsible for the whole thing and let them figure it out. So I think that says a lot about Mark Cuban and his leadership. All right, It does. And you know why that's good, too, because and, and, and you're right. People usually say, let's go get a chief diversity officer. Let's get this person. Let's get a new chief people officer, head of HR and all that. But the tone is set at the top. And if you really want to drive change, if you really want to have a successful, profitable business, it starts at the top. And then all the diversity, equity, and inclusion, the people step, that's all embedded throughout the business plan, throughout your strategies, throughout your culture and all that. It starts at the top. And he he knew that. I mean, he, he knew that. So when you first got there, what is the first things that you had to do to sort of point the ship, as we would say, in the right direction? What were some of those early things that you had to do? Okay, so I call it like, you know, it's, it was our recipe. First thing I did was lay out a vision. And I laid out a vision and a set of values. And I actually communicated this to the entire organization right before Mark and I did the actual press conference to announce me because it was important to me that the folks get a chance to hear it from me, get a chance to know me, that this was my opportunity to engage with them before the media and the masses, because it's just out of respect for people. And so I laid out a vision and that vision, and it was in March of 2018, at the end of February, 2018, the vision said we would set the global standard for diversity and inclusion in the MBA by 2019. So basically it said by the end of that year, we would be setting the global standard. And I'll tell you in a minute why I picked that vision. And then I said, and here are the values that we will operate by. And they're actually right behind me. And they spell crafts, character, respect, authenticity, fairness, teamwork, and safety, both physical and emotional safety. And then I had these hashtags to go with all of them. And then I told them, um, if anybody wants to come over to the press conference with me, come on over to the press conference, because I would say more about the vision and the values and what we were going to do. And so had the press conference, and then I came back and rolled out a 100-day plan. And it was a plan that I put together just based on my 36 years of experience at that point in leading people, leading organizations, leading, leading businesses, et cetera. And it was a four-part 100-day plan with about 200 initiatives, and it focused on four areas, modeling zero tolerance. So what's the infrastructure we would put in place to make sure people understood, code of conduct, uh, what 
values-based employment, all that. Then it laid out a women's agenda, what I call a women's playbook to really show that women could thrive in this arena and not arena, no pun intended, but like really in the business, in the world of sports that we were gonna educate, elevate, empower, encourage women. Then it had a whole cultural transformation piece and an operationally effectiveness piece to it. So this whole plan. And then I think the biggest thing I did, well, two things. I diversified our leadership team. There were zero women and zero people of color on my leadership team when I, on the leadership team when I walked in the door um, in permanent positions. And that just struck me because if you wanna be successful as a business, you better have everybody around the table. And so we went from zero women and zero people of color to 50% women, 50% people of color in 90 days. I just, I just had to, I had to address that. Um, and then I had a one-on-one -on -one with every single employee in the organization uh, because I have this leadership philosophy, it's called the three L's and it's about listen to the people, learn from the people and love the people. And so that's what it came down to, vision, set of values, a 100 day plan, one-on-ones with every, every employee and a diversified leadership team. That was the recipe. And we started our journey to be a great place to work. Wow. What was the biggest hurdle you had to overcome? I mean, what was the thing that people push back on and just like, I just can't change this. I've been doing this this, so long, this way so long. What was that toughest one for you? The toughest one was, you know, we had everybody rallied around this 100-day plan. Uh, we also had a two you know, two investigations going on. The NBA was doing theirs. Uh, we, of course, were doing our own because you know, I brought in a chief people officer with me. I brought in a chief ethics and compliance officer. And so I didn't want to just rely on what was already in place. I needed to do my own due diligence. And so we did our own investigation as well. Um, and so, so we had these two things going on. So uh, we were trying to instill a new culture while also purging an old one. And so I think we, we did that fairly effectively. The hardest thing though is, you know, you have these people and you got most of them rallied around this. They're excited. Uh, they're going through this crisis, but we're going through it together because I'm telling you, I met some amazing people when I walked in here. But also, we also had some people that needed to go. And so this one team in particular, they weren't responding the way others were responding. And so uh, one, of, one of the folks there, one of the employees told me one day, they said, we, we love what we're doing here. We love this plan. We're trying to engage. But our big bosses basically told us, don't engage because it won't last that Mark hired you as a PR stunt and it's a publicity stunt and you won't last 90 days. I was stunned. And so I called the person in and I said, well, do you mind if I share there? They're like, no, we're all talking and we want to really engage, but it's hard for us right now because of the direction we're getting. So I called the guy in and he admitted it. He said, yeah, that's what I told him. I just told him to sit back, let everybody else engage in it. You'll be gone in 90 days. And since that's where I really feel, you don't know basketball. And he went on and on and on. I said, but I know how to lead. And so we had a great conversation. I love this guy. I still love him. He was the one gone uh, very soon thereafter, and, and I'm still here, but it was, he was very honest, and I appreciate that, because he just didn't think for a second that this woman who did not know basketball could really come in here and lead a transformation. He really did think it was a publicity site. Yeah, Cynthia, in, in, in corporate America, in, in, including sports, the biggest challenge with 
diversity, equity, and inclusion is that the people in charge feel they're going to lose something if you bring in people of color, if you bring in women. They feel that there's a loss, and a loss is personal to them. How did you work through that in an organization that was so male-oriented? How did you work through that Okay, I think I think uh, two different two different uh, responses to that. Uh, number one is I think you have to show people. What I try to show people is nobody was getting their piece of the pie taken away. What we're trying to do is create a larger pie, pie, a more flavorful pie, and that there was a role to play for all of us. So this wasn't about exclusion. This wasn't about shrinking. This wasn't about taking away. This was about expanding. This is about multiplying. This is about exponential growth. And as we have that growth, that everybody would be uh, included in on that. And it would look different around that table. Okay. And so I tried to lead with inclusion. And then what I did, I spent a lot of time uh, and, and a few of us, like we put together some training modules and all that to really focus on the difference between diversity and inclusion, because a lot of times what happens is when there's just a focus on diversity, people really do get weird. Sometimes they get divisive uh, because they just think this is just about trying. And usually they think this is just about trying to get more black people at the table. Okay. Well, no, what this is about is creating a culture where people are included. And so I like to describe it often as diversity. Sometimes it's about counting numbers, but inclusion is about making the numbers count. Diversity is about the ingredients, it's about the mix, but then inclusion is about the recipe. What do we do with that? How do we mix that all up and make something beautiful, something that can lead to a diverse customer base, something that can lead to a great reputation where people, where you can win the war for talent. People want to come and work for us, something that leads to better purchasing span because you have diverse suppliers and getting even better quality. I mean, so I, what I tried to do is paint the whole business case and then focus on inclusion. That this is not just about being invited to the party and just sitting or having people just sitting at a table. This is about including people, teaching them to dance, inviting them to dance, all of that. And so we spent a lot of time on the differences and then also the differences between equity and equality. This is not about just sameness. This is about fairness. And everybody gets a chance to be met where they are and to grow. And so we spent probably more time on that than some other things so people could really understand what this culture was about, what inclusion was about. And I will, I will say, uh, people start to really get it because it wasn't just about talent and just the workforce. It was about everything that we do, the customer base, where our philanthropic dollars are going. This is about the fact that we live in a great metropolitan place and there are all kinds of cultures and all kinds of people out there, and we should be serving all of them and benefiting from all of that. And so that's how we try to focus on it. So a lot of people said, yes, that sounds great. That's the right thing to do. But we know that it's about doing the right thing for the business also. It's the Tell business us case. about the business case uh, that you created and where does it stand now? It is the business case, and I wish I had it. The Sports Business Journal actually did uh, an article on us, and I, had, you know, I actually had to cry a little bit when I read it because, you know, often you know this—you don't stop and think about everything you're doing. 
you just, you're leading people. So it's not even about me. It's not about you. It's about leading uh, people to a better place. And so we looked at, they laid out our results and they talked about the percentage of uh, increase that we've had in actual uh, revenue in our actual ticket sales and how diverse our work group is. And that diverse work group has led to uh, an increase in our uh, supplier uh, diversity spend. And it's led to an increase in revenue. It has led to a significant impact with our MAVSTEC action plan, significant impact and investment in a variety of communities. Uh, our advertising uh, spend is less but more diverse and reaching more audiences. I mean, it just laid out all this and I just stepped back because I thought about it. And of course, you know that your business results are better and you're more profitable and all that. But just to actually look at some of the numbers uh, actually blew me away. Uh, so it's about bottom line profitability. And our story is a typical, and not typical, but it is a common story of what happens when you fo focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion the right way, it always hits the bottom line. I mean, there are some Wall Street studies and you know where they are. There are all kinds of studies out there. Uh, and we, we've lived it now too. And I lived it at AT&T where your business is better. You are more profitable than your competitors who are not diverse and who are not inclusive. So, yeah, so you, you've had this amazing journey but it hasn't been without hiccups. And one of those hiccups is you got cancer. Yes. And you are a cancer survivor. Yes, I am. Hallelujah. How, how did you face that and overcome that uh, in a reasonable time to have this new phase of your life and your new career? Yes, when you probably know I have, I wrote a book that was released in September of last year called You've Been Chosen. And the title was because when I actually was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer, I guess they call it stage three C, so one left node away from stage four. And it was because a lot of it was because I did not have a colonoscopy when I was supposed to. And I had just kind of put the referral slip off to the side. So that's always one of my messages to be, to folks is to take care of your medical business. And especially in our black community, colon cancer is prevalent, uh, we need to take care of our business. So handle your business. And so once I did get a colonoscopy, I got a call from my doctor on my 51st birthday telling me to get to a surgeon. And um, ultimately the colon, colon cancer was diagnosed. And so I had to start chemotherapy immediately. But I called my mom the day that I found out I had cancer. I was sobbing. I just actually it was an out of body experience. I couldn't believe they were talking to me. I said, there's no way I'm healthy. I was an athlete growing up. I've got these four kids. I'm busy all the time. There is no way this doctor's telling me I have cancer. And when I called my mom, her response, because I was trying to have a pity party. At that point, I'm just sick. My husband is crying. I'm crying. And so my mom said, she was in California. She still is. And she just responded with a voice of power. She says, this is for his glory. God chose you for this. You're going to tell this story one day. It's going to be powerful. He's going to bring you through this. All sickness is not unto death. And she just start quoting all these scriptures and encouraging me and letting me know that this was going to be public. People were going to watch me come through this and I was going to be fine. Now, I got to admit, I didn't want to hear that. Design. I just did not want to hear that. 
because I would try to have a pity party. I might have just been told I had cancer. And so when I hung up the phone, I had to kind of get it together and say, okay, I got to go into this battle. And so I wrote this long email and it's actually in the book to my work team. And I said, I've been uniquely, I'm uniquely equipped to handle this. I've been chosen for this. I'm in the right place to get good medical care. And I wrote all the reasons I thought I had been chosen for it and said, let's go, let's go. And so we went through it and I, I did a public posting because people want to know how I was doing. So we're getting all these calls and we figured that was the best way to keep them updated. And the story ended up encouraging people along the way. And I told the good, the bad, the great, and the, all the stuff that was going on with chemotherapy, it was brutal. I just told everything that was going on with me. And that's actually what we ended up putting in the book with a lot of other stories. And what I realized is that I had already gone through a lot in my life. And this was going to be one more thing that the Lord was going to bring me through. And it's the village. I mean, it is the village. Like we're chosen to be there for people. And people showed up for me. And every single adversity I've ever faced in my life, people showed up. And so that's how I got through it. It's a, my book is about how God and great people always show up in my life. Always. And that's, that's how I got through it. Well, to that point, Sin. We here at Waymaker believe that every successful person, black, white, green, brown, whatever, has had Waymakers in their lives. And we define a Waymaker that somebody who sees something in you and you didn't see it in yourself and they decided to do something about it with no expectation for a return on their investment. Who were some of your Waymakers? love this question. I just love this whole Waymaker thing. I just love it. Okay. So I had a few. Okay. So uh, early on in my career, uh, there's this guy I used to work for, Norm McBride. I was the engineering manager at AT AT&T and my second job uh, in the company. And I had actually turned down a promotion to take this lateral job in engineering. I just wanted to learn more about our company. And one day he said, he called me Cindy back then. I let him get away with it at that time. But he said, Cindy, he said, girl, what are you going to do? What's your next job? Okay, well, what are you going to do next? And Okay, so don't judge me, okay? But I looked up at him and I said, Mr. McBride, I'm working on these engineering charts. Uh, and so my job is to deliver in this job. And your job is to figure out my next job. And he looked at me. He goes, you don't even have any thoughts about it? I said, no, that's your job. He said, Cindy, come with me, come with me. He took me to his office. And that man, you know, he's an engineering manager. So he had all these whiteboards and easel sheets and all that. He spent two hours with me. I was 23 years old. He spent two hours with me, giving me an overview of the entire company, the different departments, talking about different jobs. And by the time I left his office, I had a five-year career plan. And he looked at me and he said, Cindy, don't ever put your career in somebody else's hands. He said, now I see a lot in you. I know where you're headed. I mean, I see this and I'm going to help you get there. But that's all I'm going to do is help. You have to own your career. This man hadn't spent a whole lot of time with me. He didn't know me that well, but he saw something and decided to invest in me and help literally pave the way. Like he laid out the path and I'll just never forget that. And this is a white man. Yeah, I'll never forget that. And then there's, Chuck Smith, black guy, one of the first, I think, officers in our company at the time was Pacific Bell. And he saw something in me. 
And he also saw a time when I wasn't responding the right way to a situation. And he drove all the way from Sacramento, California to Oakland, California to my office, popped up unexpectedly and I did not want to see him and told me to stop sending emails, stop doing what I was doing because I was trying to, you know, I was had some kind of righteous indignation on an issue and I was right. But he was letting me know that there was a way to handle some things and that he was going to be a mentor to me. And he ended up being a mentor and a sponsor to help me navigate this executive level that I had achieved in the company and help me understand how to respond to things and how to handle things. Because I just didn't know. And, you know, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Uh, so he was one. And then, of course, I could rattle off Cassandra Carr and Priscilla Hill Arjwan and these other women who just showed up in my life and helped make a way for me. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's just like Mark Cuban telling me, don't worry about the business of basketball. I'll help you with that. I need you to lead. And he's been right here for me, uh, making a way through this whole industry for me. So I, I have a lot of way makers. I mean, obviously my mom, and who is just absolutely amazing, who just made a way for me uh, growing up, literally growing up in poverty with stuff going on and you know, domestic violence and all kind of stuff. And she just always uh, made a way for us. I remember when we came home um, one summer after we had to flee our house one summer, I was 15 years old. And my, mother was pray my mother's prayer was that we would make it back home before school started because education was everything. I grew up with one of these mothers who would tell us it's not where you live, it's how you live. You've got all things that are possible. She put a math book in one hand and a Bible in the other at an early age, right? And so this particular summer, everything was falling apart. My parents had gotten divorced. It was a domestic violence situation. I went back to school with a brace on my nose. And my mother, even when my father uh, had an incident, we had an incident when I was 11 years old and we had to be sequestered in the house. My mother figured out how, how I could get to school. She had a uniformed police officer take me to school every day. She always figured out how to make a way for her kids to get the education and get what they needed because she saw something bigger and better for us than where we were at the time. And so obviously she's the second way maker, the Lord being the first. She's the second, but then I had all these other ones uh, in my career. And I think that's why I, I, I focus a lot. You know, I have four, we have four adopted children, adopted out of foster care. I focus a lot on trying to be that way maker for other people. And sometimes I'm not even focused on it, it just happens because that's what life is all about. We make a way for other people. We do that because the way has, you know, it's been made for us. That's why I like this whole way maker thing. I love this. So, 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 so tell me this, you know, we've always heard that women can't have it all. You can't have okay. a great career. You we can't can. be a great mom. You can't be a great wife. You got to choose one. How have you been able to figure that out? Well, we figure it out because we're all here for each other, okay? And so I got a few different strategies, right? So, so I do believe women can have it all. Sometimes you can't have it all in the same day, okay? But we can have it all. And so I practice something called crystal balls and rubber balls. And I actually have a crystal ball that's right here behind me. You probably can't see it. And so crystal balls are those things. This is how I set my priorities. Crystal balls are those things that if you drop them, they shatter, they never come back. Rubber balls, you can throw them, they bounce back or they might bounce away. They might bounce to somebody else to catch it. 
and most things are rubber. So what I try to do, especially when I, as a working mom, is to say, what's crystal? And I'll give you a real good example. One time, my company asked me to go and help them in Washington, D.C. all week. It says, said, can you just drop everything, help us? I said, I can be there every day except for Wednesday afternoon because it's my first, my son's first high school swim meet. That's a rubber, that's a crystal ball to me. I can't drop it. And so when I get the schedule, the most important legislators they wanted me to meet with, it was on Wednesday afternoon. I said, I can't be here. And they said, well, you got to be here because these are the most important committee heads and all that. Well, I will tell you, when my son looked up, when he was getting ready to do that individual medley race on the swim team, his first high school swim meet at his new high school in a new state, guess who he saw? His sister, his daddy, and his mom. Because that was a crystal ball to me. And it just so happened that when I flew back to D.C. that Thursday morning, I met with those same policymakers who were scheduled for Wednesday night. I had to make a decision. And I've had times in my career at work and at home where I had to make a decision about what was crystal. And then sometimes I've had to make decisions and say, okay, I can't be there. And my daughter will be making pictures and she'll have three people on it. And I'm missing from the, I'm missing from the picture and all that. And so it's like, okay, whatever. I don't feel guilty about it because I mean, the kids got to eat. So you just figure out what's important, what's not important. Realize most things aren't crystal and handle the things that you have to handle and rely on a lot of support. I, I'm all about the village. My favorite song, and it's my walk-up song, but it's my song in life, is Ain't No Mound High Enough by Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye. And when you look at the words, it's about if you need me, call me. And that's what it's about. We have to be able to be there for each other, to call on people. We're not in this life by ourselves. And so that's how I've done it. Uh, I have decided what's important. I've been asked to move sometimes with my company and it just depends on the time. I remember one time I told them, well, I can't move because you know my son is stable. It's important to me that I got an African-American teenager to stable uh, because I know kind of you know the challenges of life. And then I've had times where it, it worked out and they came back and said, well, can you move now? And so you just have to know what's important and then try to work with people and work in a place where your values align and people are willing to work with you. And then you can have it all. And it's not easy, but you can have it all. Final question closes out with this. There are a lot of young women that will be listening to this podcast and reading the article. Some of them are Gen Z, some of them are young millennials. You've got this wealth of experience. Look through that rearview mirror for a second and give them some advice you wish that someone had gave you at 19, 20, 21 years old. Oh, I love this. I love this. I wish somebody would have told me to be open to the possibilities. That yes, you might have a plan, but that plan could be disruptive, be disrupted. And even when it's disrupted, that there is something good that is on the other end of it. That yes, sometimes the light at the end of the tunnel is a train. Bad things do happen to good people, but you can't give up. You've got to be open. You've got to talk to people and you just can't have boundaries and limits on yourself. And I wish somebody had told me that because I turned down opportunities. I wasn't open to different things because I was just focused on this plan that I had. And it's good to have a plan, 
but there's so many good things out there. And just don't underestimate your skills and your gifts and your talents and what you bring to the party. And people will recognize that. Yes, you have to prepare. You've got to, you know, get some tools in your tool belt and all that, but then be open to wherever the Lord wants to take it. Have that plan, but know that that plan will be altered and adjusted because there are good things out there and rely on other people. Have a village. Don't put it all on your shoulders all yourself. I did that a lot. I just had to do it myself and I can get it done and I can't trust people and all that. You can trust people. Find people that you can trust. I used to say, I just trust in the Lord. Well, you know what? He'll put people in your life and you can trust them too. And together, y'all can do some amazing things. I'm all about the brotherhood and the sisterhood. I call I practice something called Hasu moments. H-A-S-U, hook a sister up. Practice those Hasu moments. Call people, bring them in your circle and just, just be open. So much good stuff is out there waiting for you. Don't stress out over a whole lot. Get other people to help carry that stress and carry that load too. And so I think if I had to sum it up, I'd say get people in your circle. Get people in your village and rely on them. Don't put it all on yourself, either based on some plan that you have that you're obsessed about or some plans other people have for you. Just be open to the great things that are ahead because they truly are ahead. Cynthia Marshall, thank you so much. You have been absolutely amazing. Uh, you have been motivating, inspirational. We thank you so much. And as we say at Waymaker, continue to grow your life and change the world. We appreciate you. Thank you. Appreciate you too. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Cynthia Marshall. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Don't forget to claim your Waymaker Journal at waymakerjournal.com and be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode.